You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Welcome to the Brandy Show. Hi, everybody. I'm Jim Brandstatter, and this is my podcast. We'll get together every week to talk about football, primarily the University of Michigan Wolverines and the Big Ten Conference, with occasional forays into the national picture. We'll also keep up with the Detroit Lions and the NFL. Along the way, we'll have some surprises. We'll certainly have some fun guests and take a tangent or two that has nothing to do with football, like old movies or cooking. Who knows what? Sit back and relax and enjoy The Brandy Show. Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, This is Episode 5 of The Brandy Show. Good to have you along. What we have coming up for you in the next 30 minutes or so, Michigan wins big, so they go to 101. Michigan State loses out in the desert. We'll talk about both of those games. Uh, the Spartans also at 1-1 one and one now. The Big Ten kind of stubbed their toe a little bit in week two of the season. I'll have my take on that. The NFL opened its season. The games started to count. It's always more fun when they count. And, of course, that included our own gridiron heroes, the Detroit Lions. We'll spend some time on the NFL and the Lions in their Monday night meltdown, we're calling their opener against the Jets. Our trivia too deep this week will jog your memory back to the Michigan State Spartans. So if you're out there and you're a Spartan fan, uh, we're giving you something to talk about, and that is the starting offense for the Michigan State Spartans, their football team from 10 years ago back in 2008. And our special guest today, uh, ESPN football recruiting guru Tom Van Heron, he'll join us to talk about his new book, The Road to Ann Arbor. You won't want to miss that. He talks about the recruiting stories of the likes of uh, Tom Brady, uh, Reggie McKenzie, and others. So that's coming up. But in the first little bit here, let's talk about the Detroit Lions. That seems to be the story on the sports pages uh, regarding the NFL and their Monday night debacle against the New York Jets. The Jets win it 48-17 to on Monday night football in a complete and utter blowout. Now, the reason I'm going to open with this is simple. A lot of you out there know that I did Lions football games for 31 years, and I'm not doing them anymore. Uh, WJR on July 10th decided to go in a different direction. So this is my first real take about the Detroit Lions in regards to their season when it started to count. We talked a little about their preseason, but it wasn't that much. And I said, let's wait until we see the preseason, and then I'll give you what my analysis is of the Detroit Lions once I see it. Well, I can tell you this, and I'll be critical. The Lions were beaten all three phases of the game. That's not, uh, I don't think, any revelation to anybody. Um, It was on Monday night, and it was on national television. And to me, it was an embarrassment. And the Detroit Lions and their team, I think, nationally, embarrassed themselves because everybody out there thought this Lions team with Matthew Stafford was going to do something in the NFC Central, NFC North, excuse me. They've got a new coach in Matt Patricia. The guy comes over with a sterling reputation from the New England Patriots. This is going to be a new team. This is going to be a new era. And yet, what do they get? They get a really poor performance by the Detroit Lions in a 48-17 loss. And the worst thing that could happen to them, everybody is using those three words, three letters from the alphabet, S-O-L, same old Lions. In Allen Park in Detroit, the last thing anybody wanted to hear was same old Lions. Because anybody who's been a fan of this team for 10 to 20 years, and even longer, knows what that means. And it means a team that just can't get it done, that finds a way to lose. And that's what happened to the Lions on Monday night. I think it opens up their season, and it makes them in, put them in real jeopardy of becoming an afterthought. And you know what's worse for the Lions than losing the game? I mean, they opened up with a sellout crowd. That stadium was on fire. The first play and interception for a touchdown going to the Lions. I talked to a guy who was there uh, who said, man, I've never heard Ford Field that loud, that excited. And then they basically gave it away and gave it away in such a way that the people left early. And you know, Everybody got mad and everybody booed. That's bad, okay? But you know what's worse? 
apathy. When people don't care. And I think the Lions, with that opener, pushed people a little bit toward the I don't care anymore. And once you've got that from your fan base, man, you are in big trouble. Now, we can talk about the issues that were involved in this loss by the Lions, and I'll be quite frank. There were issues that we talked about in the offseason that needed to be fixed. This is Bob Quinn, their general manager. And it was, we got to shore up the offensive line. That was key. You need to protect Matthew Stafford. You need to get a running game. To that end, they drafted a big guard, Frank Ragnow, number one out of Arkansas to help the offensive line. They got LeGarrette Blunt in the offseason in free agency, a big, hard running back. Okay? They, they, they addressed those issues, right? Okay, that's what they did. They also needed to get a defensive pass rush. And they needed to be improved in stopping the run. Those were the things coming into the season everybody knew about. Patricia comes from New England. He is a, quote-unquote, defensive guru. He handled the defense for New England, and they won Super Bowls. This guy knows about defense. He knows about scheme, all that other stuff. So when in the offseason they have those issues that they needed to address and supposedly address them, and then they go out and get beat 48-17, to 17, and I'll give you an example. Rushing, you got to stop the run, right? The Jets rushed for 169 yards. The Lions, who needed to run the ball better, they need to do that. That was one of the things that was important about their offseason. They rushed for 39 yards. You will not win football games anywhere. Little League, Pop Warner, high school, college pro, running the football for 39 yards. And that was an area that was supposed to be fixed. The Lions also gave up 180 yards passing. That's not too bad, right? They got 300, but they threw the ball 52 times. Matthew Stafford and Matt Castle, 29 of 52 was their passing stats for 300 yards. They turned it over five times. The Jets scored an offensive touchdown, a defensive touchdown, and a special teams touchdown. All three phases of the game the Lions were beaten in. That was in their opener. That was when you're supposed to be coming out. It's your debut with new coach. You open up with this interception for a touchdown. The crowd is on fire. And you basically kind of laid down from that point on. I'm not saying the Lions laid down and didn't compete. They did. But bigger than all those issues, okay? And this is from a guy who watched the Lions play. For 31 years from the broadcast booth, I've watched football all of my life. That's been my job. And I will tell you, the most disturbing thing about this Lions opener was I didn't see any passion. I didn't see any urgency. I didn't even see any real emotion with this team. You know, one of the funniest things that I've ever experienced in regards to football was when Michigan would play, and I was up in the press box broadcasting games, and Coach Schembechler was still alive, and Bo would be just one booth down from me in our broadcast booth. And I would always do our open to the game broadcast, and it's about an hour before kickoff. And as soon as I did the open, I would wander over next door and talk to Bo. At the time, we would sit and talk football, and he would ask my impressions of the game, and I would ask him his impressions of what he thought was going to happen. But at the time, the teams were both out on the field and going through their pregame. There was an occasion when Bo looked at me when I walked into his booth, and he goes, Jim, this team is not ready to play. We're going to get beat today. And I looked at him, and I went, Bo, we haven't even kicked it off yet. We're an hour from kickoff. He says, look at the way they're running down there. Look at the way they're warming up. It's lackadaisical. They're not ready to play. And you know, that game was a tough game. Michigan didn't pull away to win until the fourth quarter. They were lackadaisical. He could tell it in pregame warm-ups. And you know what? There's a certain body language. There's a certain emotion that teams have to play with. And I got to tell you, the Lions on that Monday night didn't look like they had it. And if Bo were there... He would have probably sat in the press box an hour before kickoff and said, you know, this, this team's not going to do anything. Because the body language just wasn't there. The emotion, the passion for the game wasn't there. And, and here's why I say that and I feel that this team really didn't have an investment that they needed to have. You need to be invested completely in an NFL and an opener 
to win the game. Michigan, or excuse me, the Lions at the beginning of the third quarter are down 17 to 10. They take their first drive and they go down the field and score. It's 17 17. Crowds back in it. And I'm thinking when I'm watching at home, okay, they've righted the ship. Now they can take over. The next possession, the New York Jets go the distance of the field with a rookie quarterback and go up 24 17. To me, that was the game. You need to make a stand. You need to get the job done when the game's in the balance. You need to make a play. And they tie it up 17-17. Momentum is on their side. Their crowd is on their side. They're at home. And their defense allows the other guys to go the distance with a rookie quarterback and score to go 24-17. Everything at that point went south. And the Lions were on their way to a 48-17 loss. It's a shame. This city, this town, these fans deserve better. And I look at the way the Lions played, and uh, you hear all kinds of post-game stuff like the Jets uh, say they we knew their plays. That doesn't matter. I mean, did they know? I mean, there's also a story. Did they know about the kick, the punt return for a touchdown? Did they know that, you know, that Matthew Stafford was going to be awful? And have a terrible night. They obviously didn't know the plays that were uh, earmarked for Kenny Galladay, who had a, a career night receiving the football. So they didn't know about that very much, did they? But the problem is, is the Detroit Lions didn't show, I don't think, any emotion. And that's bigger than you know stopping the run and, and, and protecting Matthew Stafford, which is key for this team to win. If you can't play the game with emotion, with passion, you got problems. And And here's why this thing could go south in a hurry for the Detroit Lions. They have to play on the road at the 49ers next week. Then they've got the Patriots at home. Then they're on the road to Dallas. And then Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers comes into Ford Field. Those are four games right there that don't look like they can go in the winning column for the Lions. If you start 0-5, man, natives are going to get really restless. That's my take on the Detroit Lions after their opening week. Let's go around the NFL now real quickly. Week one, stories that I thought were interesting. Aaron Rodgers. How about Hercules? How about uh, Lazarus? They carry him off the field against uh, the Chicago uh, Bears. And and Khalil Mack, who I think Khalil Mack is going to make such a huge difference in the Bears. I think they became a team that could vie for the NFC North Championship with that defensive end. He was just spectacular. But Aaron Rodgers gets carried off the field for Green Bay. Carted off the field with a bad knee. He's not coming back. I think Lambeau Field basically dropped about three inches into the Green Bay, Wisconsin turf because those people were so depressed. Our season's over. Woe is me. So what does he do? Come out of the locker room in the second half and engineer a 24-23 win coming from behind. And, And it's like... I don't know how many of you remember the NBA when Willis Reed came out of the locker room way back when for the New York uh, uh, Knicks in an NBA championship game. It was like surreal. It was like otherworldly. And Aaron Rodgers coming back and doing that just solidified his reputation as being one of the great quarterbacks in the league. And they still don't know whether he's going to be able to play going forward because the knee still has some issues. But Aaron Rodgers coming back, that's, that's the thing of legend. Those are... That's Brett Favre playing with a broken thumb. And, and Rodgers coming back in this week one will be a story until week 17 and into the playoffs if the uh, Green Bay Packers make it. Uh, other game, Pittsburgh-Cleveland. You talk about a game of complete lunacy uh, and the fact that Cleveland hasn't won a game in a couple of years. They have a great chance to win late. They miss a field goal. So does Pittsburgh, and the game ends in a tie. There are no ties in the National Football League, but there are now. Because if you go play overtime and you can't decide the game, then basically it ends in a tie. And the Browns had every opportunity to win it. The Steelers turned it over five times. When the Browns can't get five turnovers and win the football game, that means that you've got to fight more than more than just the other team. you got to fight an attitude. you got to fight some kind of a internal problem that you can't step over the threshold and bust the door down. And that's Cleveland's issue. 
The other story I thought was fun, the Rams beat the Raiders. Now, the Raiders story is interesting because it was John Gruden's return to the game after being in the booth on Monday nights. And everybody was really excited, and little Chucky was standing over there on the sideline, and he was grimacing, and, oh, they took a lot of tight shots of him, and he just looked like Chucky. But you know what the Rams looked like? Super Bowl team. And uh, Chucky was uh, really good, and he's a good story. But Aaron Donald and and Dominican Sue on the defensive front, they make the difference in a game. And and this Todd Gurley, they're running back out there for the uh, Rams. He's the best running back, I think, in the league. I mean, you can – Le'Veon Bell's sitting out at Pittsburgh. I don't care, Le'Veon. Uh, this Todd Gurley is the real deal. And and I think the Rams, beating the Raiders on that first night, opened up saying, you know what, we're not fooling around this year. We are a Super Bowl contender. Look out for the L.A. Rams. The Vikings, defense, as advertised, they're going to be a tough out in the NFC North, believe me. And the one big surprise team I saw was the Redskins, Okay. The Redskins go out to the desert and beat Arizona. I thought after preseason the Redskins couldn't beat a Pop Warner team. I was wrong. They're going to be good too. And the NFC East is going to be interesting with, I think, Philadelphia and the Redskins vying. And I think Dallas might be a team that's on the outside looking in down there. So that's what I thought of the first weekend of the NFL, including the Detroit Lions. Let's go to the college football now. How about Michigan winning at uh, home against Western in their opener 49-3? to you know, they needed a blowout win because they got their record back to 1-1. One and one. They silenced the critics from the Notre Dame loss in the opener. And the one thing I'll tell you about it, and I'm not telling you anything that's new, but Shea Patterson's performance, which was outstanding, he threw three touchdown passes, but his performance was directly related to the improvement of the offensive line and what the offensive line was able to do. He had time to throw. He did a great job of throwing on the run. He did it against Notre Dame, too. But his versatility and the ability to throw on the run in rollouts really, I think, gives Michigan a new dimension offensively. But the offensive line blocking for him and a running game getting going, you saw Karan Higdon get over 150 yards rushing. That's so huge to an offense. And the offensive line had to do the job to create holes for Higdon to get that. But when the offensive line plays well, the running game goes, the passing game goes, the quarterback gets more time. And I'll tell you something about Shea Patterson. He made a couple of throws that guys play on Sunday can't make. And I mean that. Don't think I'm just talking about you know Michigan and being high on them because I'm the guy doing the broadcast of the Michigan games. That's not it. It's about what he did physically, rolling to his left, his offhand, turning his body, making a throw right on the sideline accurately for a tough third down conversion. That's something you don't see in the NFL. And the other throw was the five-yard touchdown pass to Donovan Peoples-Jones. He dropped it right over the defender's helmet into a receiver running away from him, and the receiver was able to get both feet down just inside the sideline. That throw... There are guys in the NFL that looked at that throw, scouts, and they'll say, this guy's got an NFL caliber arm. He's got an NFL caliber touch. Shea Patterson can get the job done. No worries about that. The big key is the offensive line has to help him. The defense, I thought, was very aggressive for Michigan. I I thought in the first game against Notre Dame, they were kind of laying back and watching a little bit. Against Western, they absolutely came out and dictated the pace of the game. That's what they need to do. And Don Brown's got the athletes that can do that. The big question here is, it was Western Michigan. And and I think that's what Michigan is going to face all season long. You guys can, uh, I think, probably agree with me in the sense that Michigan needed to get a blowout win. They did. But they're not going to get a lot of credit for beating Western Michigan. They really aren't. In order for them to really get credibility, if you will, nationally, they need to win big games. So, in my opinion, this season for Michigan is kind of boiled down to four games. Michigan State, Penn State, Wisconsin, and Ohio State. They're not going to get any credibility. They're not going to get any real attaboy or national acclaim unless they win one of those four games or three of the four against big quality teams. Uh, Beating SMU this coming week, that's not going to be a big deal. Nobody's going to jump up and down about it. They're expected to. What they have to do is win those four big games, Michigan State, Penn State, Wisconsin, and Ohio State. That's Michigan's season now. It's a perception thing. They'll win a bunch of games, but unless they beat three or two of those those teams, 
I think the perception is going to be that uh, Michigan's underachieving. It's sad, but that's the perception, and that's what Michigan looks forward to this season. Uh, from Michigan State's standpoint, they go to one-on-one. They lose out in the desert 16-13 in a 100-degree temperature to Arizona State. Now, the one thing about this game is, and this is no secret, you just can't turn it over in the red zone going in on the road and expect to win football games. You've got to take advantage of every possession you have in the red zone. They threw an interception, Michigan State did, which I think turned the game around. The other thing is they go up 10 points at one point in that game, and the Michigan State defense, which I talked about in the first game against Utah State, didn't seem to me to be as as good um, and as powerful as it has been in the past. Well, they couldn't hold on to that 10-point lead. And the one thing that I think hurt them is that they continued to try to go man-to-man coverage on the outside on a receiver that was just outstanding. Arizona State has a receiver named Harry. He is absolutely one of the best. And I think Michigan State could have, would have been smarter doubling him late in the game instead of letting him go one-on-one because ultimately he caught a pass that turned out to be the game winner for Arizona State. They go on to win at 16-13. You know, I'm not sure I'd go all over the coaching staff at Michigan State for this loss. Really, they're playing in 100-degree weather. They're on the road. Uh, Arizona State's a tough team with a great receiver. And and if there was one thing I would say is that they got away a little bit from their basics and their fundamentals, their hallmark, which is running the football. They try to throw it a little bit more. And while Lewerke, I think, is a wonderful quarterback, an excellent quarterback, uh, I think they still need to feature the run a little bit more. And if they'd have done that, they'd have been able to think, burn some time, burn some clock. I think they still could have won that one. In my opinion, uh, that's a game probably got away from Michigan State uh, that they should have won. Let's turn to the Big Ten. Let's go to our eyebrow raisers first. The Big Ten eyebrow raisers this past weekend. Eastern Michigan beats Purdue 20-19. Duke beats Northwestern 21-7. Colorado beats Nebraska 33-28. Those three are are kind of eyebrow raisers. Uh, you got a MAC team and an ACC team beating Big Ten teams and a Pac-12 team, Colorado, beating Nebraska. Nebraska was their first game. Scott Frost, his first uh, game as the returning prodigal son coach for the uh, uh, Cornhuskers. But 33-28, they're better, I think, than Colorado. Uh, so now you've got Purdue at 0-2, Northwestern at 1-1. That was a big surprise to me. I thought them beating Purdue in Purdue was big, but after Eastern Michigan beats Purdue, uh, maybe that victory by Northwestern over Purdue down there wasn't that big a deal. And Nebraska's 0-1. The other ones that I thought were closer than expected in the Big Ten, Indiana beats Virginia 20-16. Minnesota beats Fresno State 21-14. That's an ACC team and a Mountain West team. So the Big Ten, I think, kind of stubbed their toe a little bit this past weekend. Uh, The opening weekend, Big Ten looked strong. Uh, This past weekend, I don't think maybe they did as well as I would have expected. All right, here's time now for our uh, Trivia 2D. Remember I told you at the beginning we're going to go back 10 years? And I'm going to give you the Michigan State, Michigan State Spartan starting offense from 19 or from 2008. Wide receivers: Mark Dell, Blair White, and Fred Smith. How many of you had them? Uh, I bet you didn't have them all. Of uh, the other wide receivers: B.J. Cunningham, Keyshawn Martin. I mean, those are two quality names for Michigan State back then. And the tight end for that uh, that team was Charlie Gant, Garrett Selleck, and David Duran. Those are the three tight ends. Up front offensively for the Spartans in 2008, Rocco Cerrone at left tackle, Jesse Miller right tackle, Joel Foreman left guard, Roland Martin at right guard, and Joel Nitschman was the center for Michigan State back then. Running backs, you should get these, okay? Javon Ringer, what a running back he was. 5'9 and 202 pounds, but boy, he was quick. Ringer, A.J. Jimerson, and Andre Anderson, and Ashton Leggett were the four uh, running backs. Fullbacks, Andrew Hawkins and Jeff McPherson. But here's the, here's the ones that you should get. And if you wonder why Michigan State has had really good success of late, just look at the quarterback position. Brian Hoyer was the starter, and Kirk Cousins was his backup. Both of these guys are in the NFL. They have NFL-caliber talent at the quarterback position. I want to tell you what. If you wonder why Michigan State has done well, you wonder how they have really improved and uh, taken over. They beat Michigan quite a bit 
Mark D'Antonio has done a great job as the coach there, but it's also about talent. And when you look back 10 years ago to 2008 and you see that Brian Hoyer was their starter and his backup was Kirk Cousins, who's starting right now for the Minnesota Vikings, and that's a team that might very well go to the Super Bowl, you get the idea that the Spartans have had some pretty good players. That's our Two Deep Trivia, the 2008 Michigan State Spartans starting offense. Hope you won. There will be parting gifts for those of you who didn't at the door on your way out. Don't go away. When we come back, we'll talk recruiting, Michigan recruiting, a new book from Tom Van Heron. This is The Brandy Show. The Brandy Show is a Zing Media Group production. Zing Media Group, tell your story. Welcome back to The Brandy Show, everybody. We are now joined by Tom Van Heron. Now, if you don't know Tom, I'll tell you. He is a recruiting analyst for the ESPN Worldwide Leader in Sports. He's also a native of Michigan, and he's got a book out called The Road to Ann Arbor, and it's basically a book that covers a myriad of young players and how they were recruited and how they got to Michigan to play football, including Tom Brady. goes all the way back to the days of a teammate of mine, Reggie McKenzie, back in the late 60s. Tom, first of all, it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thanks for, Native for having of, me on. Oh, no, we're delighted, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about the book. Native of Michigan, right? I am, yeah. I'm born and raised in Rochester Hills. I went to Rochester High, and then I went to Central Michigan University. Cool. Uh, Mount Pleasant uh, is where you uh, um, matriculated on to get your degree, huh? I did, yeah. It was uh, My sister was there before me, and I followed in her footsteps, and uh, forever a Chippewa now. That's great. So how did you get in this recruiting business thing? You know, I don't want to sound like a bad guy, but there are people out there that watch guys like you, especially on ESPN, and I know you're on ESPN. I've seen you on Channel 7 Sports Cave quite a bit uh, here in yep. the Detroit area. Uh, they call you guys geeks. Uh, recruiting <laughs> geeks. How did you become a recruiting geek? Well, I, I kind of got into this in about in a roundabout way. Um, I, I actually, out of college, I was in sales, and then I was the new business coordinator for an advertising agency. And I, I just kind of looked around one day, and I said, you know what? I'm not meant to be in an office in a nine-to-five job. And so I, I just kind of figured out what it was that I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And my father is actually a golf pro. Um, so I grew up in somewhat the, the sports world, the sports industry. And, and, you know, I looked at him and I said, he's not in an office, so I'm not supposed to be in an office. And when I was a kid, I had three big dreams that I wanted, I wanted to do with myself. I wanted to be a golf pro and that kind of weeded itself out because I'm good, not great at golf. So that was out the window. Okay. Before we go on, what's your handicap? Well, right now it's a little bit lower than it normally is. So right now I'm, I'm at a 7.6. That's not bad. If you're single digits, you're con- you're playing, man. Yeah, I I should probably be more closer to a nine or a ten, but either way, I'll take that. Oh, that's every golfer um, says that. You know that. Stop it. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> but you know, I I I looked around and I as a kid, I wanted to be, so I wanted to be a golf pro. I wanted to work for ESPN, and I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. And I, I kind of thought about that when I, when I was in my job that I didn't like out of college. And, and I just figured that sports writing was something that I've always wanted to do. Uh, I love talking to people. I love telling stories. I've wanted to be on TV. I've wanted to be in the sports industry in some way. And I, I figured out a path to do that. Um, I had a, a, you know, a strategy for myself and how to market myself, how to network. And, uh, I ended up, connecting with Brian Cook at MGO blog. And I, I found a, a niche that, that they were missing in recruiting. And um, I asked him, I said, you know, I don't have a portfolio per se to show you. So if you bring me on for, for two months, I'll do it for free. And after the two, those two months, if you like me, then we'll talk about hiring me. And, and he did. And uh, after about two years of really just working as hard as I could working uh, as much as I could, uh, ESPN found me and, and called me up and interviewed me and brought me on. And I've been with ESPN since 2011 now. Well, you've really done a great job. And uh, it has become a cottage industry recruiting. And your book, The Road to Ann Arbor, and people can get it right now, can't they? Is it on Amazon and uh, you can get it in bookstores anywhere? Yeah, anywhere that you can buy books right now. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Triumph Books. Uh, I know it's local, too, in Nicola's and Illiterati, and I believe MDEN is going to be carrying it as well. Very cool. But the interesting thing about the book, and it's kind of 
touted in your notes the incredible twists and improbable turns along the Michigan recruiting trail. It sounds like a movie trailer, but 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 that's that's what's in your book. Tell me, give me an incredible twist that you you found out in this book. Yeah, I, that that's kind of the the big message of the book is whether you follow recruiting or not. I, I think this is, and you probably know this from your experience and from your teammates that this is a different piece of Michigan football history that everybody talks about their favorite players. And you mentioned, we go all the way back to 1968 with Reggie McKenzie. You've got Jim Harbaugh, Mark Mesner, uh, Tom Brady's in the book. And, and this, this shows a different side of Michigan's history and really how close Michigan history was to changing. And Tom Brady's story especially is one for me that was so surprising because other people have written about Tom Brady's recruitment and, uh, you know, little bits here and there. But what I found out was nobody has really told the entire story uh, of his recruitment. And well, that one a, for me is... Give me a teaser on that. Yeah, I, I will for sure. And, and you know, the reason I, I started this book was Bobby Morrison. I had a conversation with Bobby Morrison, and Bobby told me the entire story of Tom Brady. Uh-huh. And I researched it and researched it and talked to more people. And what what everybody knows about his recruitment is that Michigan was late in the process in recruiting him, but people don't know why Michigan was late in the process to recruit him. And, and in this book, there is another quarterback that was involved that Michigan wanted, uh, that they were recruiting before Tom Brady. And I go into detail into who that is, what ultimately happened and why they ended up recruiting Tom Brady, uh, and landing him. But had that other quarterback chose Michigan, Tom Brady might have ended up at Cal and, and forever changing the history of Michigan football. So those kind of stories are in there. And I try to do, I try not to give just a look from the player's point of view. I, I, in every chapter, I tried to give as much reporting as possible with a, a Michigan assistant coach that recruited him, an opposing coach, family members, the player, to, to give you really the full story on each player, not just Tom Brady. So every chapter is full of, uh, different anecdotes and stories for each player. Right, and the, uh, one of the interesting stories was, you say, Desmond Howard turned down Nick Saban. Now, this is back when, what, Nick was at Michigan State? Yeah. And yeah. what happened on that one, and why did Desmond wind up in Ann Arbor? You know, it's funny because Desmond still talks very, very highly of Nick Saban still to this day, and he developed a good relationship with him. Um, it ultimately, you know, it, it came down for him was he was waiting to the last minute for an offer from Bo Schembechler. And um, there were other schools involved. Georgia Tech was involved. You mentioned Michigan State and Nick Saban. And, and something about Bo just drew – Desmond was drawn to him. And, and he met with Bo and, and just the matter of factness from him. You know, everybody has a Bo story. And Desmond <laughs> has a Bo story. I got a hundred of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the best part for me was – Everybody that told their Bo story, they also have a, an impersonation of Bo. Oh, of course. And they tell they tell the story in his voice, and, and I think ultimately that's really what it was for Desmond. Was as much as he liked Nick Saban, I, I think he was just always drawn to Bo, and and he looked to this day he still speaks so highly of him and his relationship of, of with Bo that that's really what drew him to Michigan and, and put them over the top. Didn't Desmond and Elvis Gerback come as kind of a package deal? Yeah, and, you know, I, I spoke with, with Elvis, and unfortunately his story didn't make the book, but he has an interesting story, too, especially with Nick Saban. Uh, I, I spoke with Elvis and, and said, you know, you, you guys, you and Desmond were being recruited by a lot of the same schools, and he speaks highly of Nick Saban. What was your experience like? And he said, you know, it's funny because I actually got, I got into a little bit of a, uh, an argument with Nick Saban. And, and so he explained to me what happened. He, he said, at, at this point, Elvis knew he wasn't headed to Michigan state. He, he knew that he wasn't going to choose Michigan state. So he just thought that maybe he'd get a question in that he'll, he knew he never had the chance to do again. And he asked Nick Saban, he said, Hey, are your players taking steroids? And I guess what Elvis told me was it, it obviously uh, angered Nick Saban and Nick started yelling at him. Oh, really? And yeah. And, and Elvis said that, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't care too much cause he knew he wasn't headed there, but it, it was kind of a, a solidifying factor that he knew that that wasn't the place for him. So that was an interesting story that didn't even make the book. 
The other question I wanted to get to was the difference in recruiting from modern dimes, uh, the Desmond to the Elvis and, and on into the modern players, to back in the day of Reggie McKenzie, because Reggie and I were recruited in the same class. Mm-hmm. And, and back then, uh, we had no clue who was in our class. Uh, and and, and the, the difference in how this recruiting thing has grown and exploded – uh, from back when we were recruited in 1968 to what it is today is just remarkable. Did you find it surprising that, I mean, Reggie came to Michigan and really had no idea who he was coming to play with? Cause I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, you're right. And that, that's another, um, another cool aspect of the story that we, we kind of go through the decades and show you how recruiting has changed just through the stories and, and Reggie's story, I thought, and I'm sure you have an awesome story as well, but um, you know, Reggie really, how, how Michigan found him was through his, Reggie's mom's doctor, who was a Michigan alum. And uh, the doctor called up the, the assistant coaches at Michigan and said, hey, I got a kid down here you might want to look at. Uh, George like Manns that. was that assistant, wasn't he? George Manns was the assistant. Right. And Jim, I, ha- I have to tell you too, I, George Manns, I tried forever to get a hold of George. And, and as you can imagine, he's in his eighties. It was difficult to, to get a hold of him. I finally got a hold of him. And I said, you know, I've been trying months to get a hold of this guy. I don't even know if he's going to remember the story. This is 50 years ago. Yeah. And I, and I spoke to George and he recalled the same exact story that Reggie did down to <laughs> the, down to the name of Reggie's mom's doctor that told him about Reggie. It was incredible that he remembered that story, but you know, you, you go through the years and, and Mark Mesner, we have his old recruiting letters from Bo and some other, other coaches, and you can even see the verbiage and, and, and how they recruit in those letters. Well, that's what I All, thought. I thought that was interesting. That to me is a little piece of history, uh, you know, yeah. that, that, that are like museum pieces. And I'm glad that Mark saved them because when I saw those reproduced in your book, I thought how cool that is because I basically got the same letter except mine was different. It was it said on the headline, University of Michigan Athletics, board in control of intercollegiate athletics. It never really said anything about football. And 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 the letter that Bo wrote Messner back in the day was kind of similar to that. And the letter, other letters he got from Notre Dame, for instance, it was such a different kind of a an approach from even two schools like Michigan and Notre Dame. Yeah, and well, and you you compare it to now uh, recruiting now and back then. This was ni- Mark was recruited in 1983. For people that, that don't know, and the letters in there, some of them say to more or less say, "Hey, I, I hope you had a good summer. We'll be watching you your senior year. We'll talk to you afterwards." And it, it's it's unfathomable unfathomable to think that today you just couldn't do that. You know? No, there's <laughs> you, no you way. You the, would not get any recruits. No, so the, it's interesting to see how it changes throughout yeah. the years. The name of the book is The Road to Ann Arbor, The Incredible Twists and Improbable Turns Along the Michigan Recruiting Trail by Tom Van Heron. He's our guest. And there's a forward in the book by Brian Greasy uh, doing Monday Night Football now. Uh, how did you get yeah. Brian? Did you talk Brian into doing the uh, forward? Because he was very – it was a really nice forward, by the way. Yeah, he, he, um, you know, he's very humble and very modest and, and, uh, really, really I don't good guy. Say, yeah, he is. He is. And he, I, I think he, he, he hesitated at first just because he didn't want the attention on him, I think is what it really was. And, and, you know, it's interesting that he's in the book as well because everybody is probably thinking, well, he was a walk on, you know, what, what recruiting story could he have? But I, I think he has a, another aspect to this of, um, you know, what walk-ons have done for Michigan and what he specifically did for Michigan. And, and the fact that, you know, who his father was, and he had some other opportunities. Brian had some scholarship offers and, and could have gone to other schools. But because he didn't really have a lot of offers and because he didn't have a lot of big offers, he never really thought that he would end up in the NFL. So a big part of his decision was the education that he was going to get so he could get a job after college. Yeah outside of football. And so that aspect too, that story, I thought his was incredible. Um, despite the fact that he wasn't offered a scholarship during his recruitment. If I'm not mistaken, he majored in a language, didn't he? Didn't he major in Spanish? Uh, I, I believe that's correct. Um, um, uh, I'm blanking on that now, but I believe that's correct. And, And you know, his, his chapter as well, uh, as a lot of the other ones, it goes beyond their recruitment too. And, and I found out a story about Brian, 
uh, from his time at Michigan that I didn't really know that he actually thought about leaving Michigan. Oh yeah. Um, I remember and he, that. And he, yeah. And he detailed that in the book and what he was thinking and really what ultimately led him to stay. And, and then obviously he had a ton of success and at the end of his career. Right. Last question on the book. Then we're going to get into our shot clock feature. Um, modern day recruiting social media has made a huge change. Is it to the good or the bad? I I don't I'm not sure which because coaches now, players now, everybody is involved in tweeting, facebooking, uh instagramming and it's so much different now than it was and that's why I think it's become this cottage industry. Do you think it's a good thing for recruiting? I think it's just kind of one of those, it's among uh, the, the arms races and everything. If you don't do it, then you're not going to, you're not going to win. Um, and you're not going to get those recruits. Uh, in my opinion, I, you know, I, I look at it from the aspect of a recruit that, that wants the attention or a recruit that doesn't want the attention. And I think there are both sides to it where some recruits really like it. And they, they've, they've taken to building their brands through social media and they, they enjoy the attention from the coaches and um, uh, you know, they enjoy the attention from the fans on social media, but some of the kids, I know they don't like it. And, and there's, there's so much access to not only recruits, but athletes and coaches and um, public figures through social media that, that sometimes there's too much access. And sometimes we forget that these are high school kids. You know, a lot of them are getting offers as, as freshmen in high school now that, they're being they're being uh, contacted by fans through social media, whether they want to or not, from right. 14 years old to, to 17 years old. Right. And I think that can be hard to deal with. So yeah. I, I think there's positives and negatives. To, you know, the positives that these kids have exposure that that uh, a lot of a lot of past players in you know the 90s and, and 80s and 70s and 60s never had, and they can they can get their film in front of coaches like they never been able to before. But the downside I think is that access from everybody and there's, there's no off switch for them. They can't turn it off and get away from it. You used a term in there that I think speaks volumes about the whole recruiting process and what it's become. You said building their brand. Mm -hmm. Think about a high school kid 20 years ago, thinking about building (laughs) his brand. That term would have never come to his mind. And yet today, that's kind of what you're talking about. So real quickly, let's go to uh, our, I call it our shot clock feature. What it is, it's a quick question, quick answer. You and I weigh in on a topic. And I'll start it off with what's good about recruiting? What's, what, what is the good thing about recruiting now, the best thing? And then what's the I worst? Yeah, I, I think it's the stories and, and, and just seeing seeing these kids reach their goals and reach their dreams. And, and, you know, we talked about social media, having access to see a lot of these kids reach their dreams and goals. Uh, a lot of them work really hard and a lot of them are, are using this as a way to get out. So I think that's, for me, that's the best thing. The worst thing, um, I, you know, I, I think it's the, the negativity that comes with it uh, a lot of times, sometimes from the fans. Uh, in the book, Aubrey Solomon's chapter, his mom, his mom talked about how, some SEC fans and the negativity that they had towards her and towards Aubrey impacted their decision. So I, I think that's always going to be uh, a downside for recruiting. I agree with you. I think that the thing that's the best is the fact that you get some kids who would never have, have the chance to get to a yep. college and get a degree, have the chance based on their abilities as a football player to recruit them to go to a university and get a degree. That to me is the best part of the whole deal. Uh, and the worst part, I think, I would agree to some bit the fact that one, they aren't allowed to be kids. That to yeah, me, I, yeah. I think when you're 16 years old, go to your senior prom, you know, go, go, you know, pin, put your uh, letter jacket on your girlfriend and walk around or hold hands with her, uh, you know, at the, at the high school dance. And there's sometimes projected way of way forward where the, now they become this commodity on a football team. That that's the part I don't like, I guess. Um, yep, I how, agree with that. Uh, real quickly, how about best recruiting areas in the country? Oh man, well the South, Florida, Georgia, Michigan's trying to get into Georgia yeah. uh, a lot lately. There's been a big boom there of, of talent. Um, Texas and California, those are the big areas. But I, for Michigan right now, I think the biggest push that they've had is in the state of Georgia. That's that's where a lot of the the best players are coming right now. Yeah, the Southeast is where uh, it seems like the best players are coming from. I know. They talked about Florida in high school having spring football. They're able to develop players a lot quicker and a lot better, so they're able to walk into college 
on campus in the first year and be able to be a, a, a guy that contributes. Oh yeah. And, and now you have IMG Academy where the kids that aren't even from the Southeast are traveling in and, and transferring into IMG Academy. And you've got basically a, you know, a, a junior college team in high school with a ton, a ton of talent just on one team. So that's impacting things as well. Right. How about best closers in recruiting coaches? Oh man. Yeah. You know, I, I think probably the, the names that you'd expect would be on there. I mean, Nick Saban is tough to go head to head again. Yeah. Uh, he's one of the names. I think Jimbo Fisher at Texas A&M now, previously at Florida State, I think he's up there. Uh, Urban Meyer, obviously, as well. I think those guys are really, really tough to go up against just because they've done it before, they've they've been in battles before, and they have so much weight behind what they say to a lot of these recruits. Speaking of Urban Meyer, do you think that their issues down there with the domestic abuse and how he handled that is going to hurt them in recruiting and give them a problem with parents particularly uh, looking at their young men entering school at Ohio state. Yeah, this is not my opinion. This is, this is uh, from talking to recruits and their parents. I I really don't see it impacting. Um, They're recruiting a lot. A lot of the prospects that I've talked to uh, after it was announced that urban Meyer was going to be suspended and not fired. um, The main message that I get that I got from a lot of recruits was that the problem was in the past with Zach Smith, the wide receivers coach, he's now gone. And a lot of the recruits were actually happy to see Urban Meyer back. And as long as Urban Meyer is is the coach there, I think they see it as a positive, and they they see that program um, still still headed in the right direction in terms of allowing them to attain their goals that that they want. Here's so, another, uh, do you recruit the parent or do you recruit the the kid? Because because yeah. I think if you recruit the parent, the parent would probably have a problem with how Urban Meyer handled what was going on at Ohio State, whereas a young man might not. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I have talked to some parents about it too. And I think their, their main thing was that they were disappointed in how everything happened. Um, and they want, they wanted a, a couple questions answered in terms of how is it going to be fixed and what's going to happen in, in the future. But I don't know, Jim, I think you'd be surprised at, at how many people I've talked to that have really not had strong negative opinions towards it uh, in terms of parents and recruits. <laughs> that's too bad. <laughs> and that's my opinion. Uh, cause I, watching that thing, I gotta tell you, Tom, uh, Urban Meyer came off looking really bad. Uh, that was yeah. just my, that was just my opinion. And again, of course I'm a Michigan guy, but, uh, you know, I, I just thought that, uh, that whole thing was handled poorly. And I thought Ohio state ultimately would suffer because I think nationally, uh, they're, they're a bit of a laughing stock, uh, in how they dealt with the thing. Uh, but that's well, just me, you know, that's just me. And I'm not, I'm not out there on the recruiting trail and I don't have a 110,000 seat stadium with scarlet and gray and all that stuff that they can offer a young man. Sure. And I, I agree with you. I think the press conference probably raised more questions than answers for, for me looking in. Well, the, uh, that's the, why I, the written report sure did. Yeah. 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 I, the whole thing is, is very, very interesting. And like I said, that's not my opinion. It's, it's, uh, from the recruits, you know, it's and and what they're looking at, it seems that it won't have really a negative a negative impact okay. on them. Last two questions. We're gonna have some fun with these on the shot clock. Uh, you're from Mount Pleasant. Your favorite place is to eat in Mount Pleasant. Oh man, we always love going to the cabin. Uh, the cabin breadsticks and pizza was the best. It was it. Um, yeah, Mountain Town Station was always good too. <laughs> um, those two places way back, I think, hey, are, are probably nice. Way back in the day, I'm talking probably 50 years. They had a place called Falsettas up there. Uh, they okay. had a pizza place and that was always one of the best. Didn't they have the Embers up there too? Oh yeah, yeah, Embers. And you know what? I would be remiss if I didn't mention Marty's. Marty's Bar has. And this is this sounds completely disgusting now, but you have to imagine a college kid on a college budget. They have, a, I believe, it was a seven dollar steak dinner where you got a steak, <laughs> a potato, and a vegetable. Did you need a jackhammer to get through the steak? Yeah, you know what? The knife never seemed strong enough for some reason, <laughs> but it was good at the time. Okay, uh, last question uh, in our shot clock today: favorite Saturday Night Live character? Oh wow. That is so hard. Um, I I think you know I am a I'm a huge huge Chris Marley fan, and I think Matt Foley, the motivational speak, speaker, I think that is ultimately one of one of my favorites. Um, Chris Mar- any Chris Marley movie always makes me laugh. Yeah. Any character on SNL from him, I, I always laugh. Uh, at. See, I'm I'm way back old school, and uh, 
I think that what John Belushi did for that that franchise, oh, yeah. and uh, the other one was a, a University of Michigan graduate, Gilda Radner. What those yeah. two guys did for that franchise, as you go, everybody else built off what they did, and so those Rosanna, are my Rosanna, two. Dana. Yeah, Roseanne, Rosanna, Dana, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, we have we have the box never set. mind. <laughs> right, we we had the box set of I think it was every season of SNL from when it started. So those even going back to like the seventies and everything and the eighties, we we I've watched all of those. So that that. That's that whole series, you know, starting that into the 90s, those, you can't beat them. All right. Well, the, the, the name of the book is Road to Ann Arbor. It's by Tom Van Heeren, uh, who is a native Michigander, uh, Rochester native, went to school at Central Michigan, now works for ESPN as a recruiting coordinator. Once again, uh, Tom, tell everybody where they can get the book, The Road to Ann Arbor. Yeah, anywhere you buy books, uh, triumphbooks.com, amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, um, anywhere locally around Ann Arbor as well as nationally. Um, uh, you know, I appreciate you having me on, too. I, I hope people enjoy the book. I appreciate you coming on, Tom. Thanks very much. Best of luck, man. Thank you. You, too. All right. Tom Van Heeren, our guest on The Brandy Show, uh, talking about The Road to Ann Arbor. Great book. Hey, I want all of you to tune in to Michigan Wolverine Football on WWJ News Radio 950 in Detroit and the Michigan Football Network all over Michigan. A 3.30 kick this coming weekend against SMU. Dan Deardorff joins me and John Jansen. Uh, Doug Karsh for all of that. Turn the TV volume down, radio, radio volume up, and uh, listen to our broadcast. Nationally streaming, you can go to radio.net. And tune in to WWJ and you'll find our games there. Also, every Sunday morning at 10.30, don't forget to watch Inside Michigan Football on WXYZ TV Channel 7 in Detroit. You get your post-game story there every week with yours truly, Jim Harbaugh, and Michigan All-American John Jansen along with Ed Kengerski. If you get the chance and you come across my Facebook page, do me a favor, like it. It's Jim Brandstetter. Like that Facebook page and join our adventures on Twitter it's simple. Just follow at Jim Brandstetter. And on game days, I want you to know that thing is smoking that Twitter uh, place, that Twitter uh, handle or whatever you call it, that Twitter space is smoking with a lot of action on game days from right up in the broadcast booth. So follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. The special thanks uh, to Podcast Detroit. They help us get on and off of the Brandy Show and the Zing Media Group and our producer Kathleen Stevens. Until next week, thanks for being with us, everybody. This is the Brandy Show.